Welcome to The Craft. I'm your host, Mae Globus. This podcast is a collection of intimate conversations on artistry, mastery, and life with talented, passionately curious creatives and entrepreneurs. Most are dear friends, some are those I've admired from afar. I hope you enjoy these conversations, this exploration of the humanity that connects all of us as much as I do having them. Thank you for being here and for listening. This episode is sponsored by Happy Fox Health, a natural supplement brand focused on CMOS, a marine algae that has 92 out of 102 essential nutrients that your body needs to thrive and regenerate. I've used a number of their products and found it's really given me clarity of mind. Visit happyfoxhealth.com and use promo code THECRAFT for an exclusive 15-20% to 20% discount off your first product purchase. As a number of you know, I'm also a certified sound therapy practitioner and founder of Oto Healing, a sound therapy studio and practice. Sound has been a healing modality through many cultures for thousands of years. Oto's approach to sound is rooted in both art and science, the art being the history of sound, the science being quantum physics, biology, brainwave states, and more. All listeners of the show get 15% off their first private one-hour session. Visit otohealing.com to book yours now. Penny Lane Shen is the consummate conversationalist. To get into a discussion with her is to go deep into all topics. The artist consultant and founder of Dazed and Confucius has spent decades in the art world, particularly in the fine art space, working in galleries, teaching, and now guiding artists around the globe as they refine their practices. She grew up mostly in Vancouver, the precocious daughter of Chinese immigrant parents. From a young age, she was strong-headed and a rule-breaker, at times to the chagrin of her traditional father and mother. Born from a wild imagination, Penny Lane had the ability to draw and make when she was a child, practicing her art over and over. This artist leaning took her to the University of Toronto to get her fine arts degree, and then to NYU to do a master's degree. A visa exploration brought her back to Vancouver, among other reasons, where she continued to work at galleries while doing private artist consultations on the side. In 2016, she finally fully pivoted into her consulting work with Dazed and Confucius. In this conversation, we explore the dynamic between her and her parents during her early years, the ways her chapter living in New York opened her and challenged her, what to keep in mind when building a budding art collection and what makes a meaningful collection, the emerging new wave of POC collectors, how artists can build a strong career and what traits they should embrace in order to succeed, why intention, practice, and context are essential when critiquing art, an examination of curation, What's exciting her and disheartening her about the art world? One question every artist should ask themselves, and much more. Please enjoy this very open and honest conversation with the incredibly brilliant and bold Penny Lane Shen. Penny Lane Shen, welcome to The Craft. Thank you so much. I'm super excited to be here. Me too, me too. You and I have had several great conversations that have lasted very long times. So I can't wait to bring some of this into the studio and... Share this with other people. I, I really <laughs> hope other people like it too. <laughs> How have you been? Uh, I've been good. Um, I had a wonderful summer away in Ireland, Scotland, England, and it's been it's been tough to be back, of course, in in different ways um, for different reasons. But um, you know, the fall 
and Halloween, my favorite holiday, <laughs> is coming up. So that's always a positive. Yeah. Are you dressing up? Are you a costume person? I am a costume person very much. So quite, quite hardcore costume person. Um, but this year it's on a Monday. It lands on a Monday. So mm-hmm. it's a bit, um, you know, it's not the best day for Halloween, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. And you've got one planned? No, I never really plan until very close to the oh, time. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I go into the tickle trunk and dig out things and oh, I love that. do some FX makeup <laughs> on and, and yeah. Oh, wow. I try to make it scary. I like it. I like it a bit scary. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I remember one year, um, the wife of an acquaintance showed up at a Halloween party and it was the most grotesque the way that she did her makeup. It mm-hmm. was like a zipper. A zipper. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's classic. There's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's in the tickle trunk as well. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, let's let's go back into your history. Okay. So you grew up in Vancouver, but then you moved to the interior. So take me back. Take me back to childhood. What what was it like? What were you like? Sure. Um yeah, when I was uh, young, I definitely was quite precocious, I think, um, a bit of a handful for my immigrant parents who had just moved here and uh, were poor <laughs> and, you know, had hung on to the wing of the airplane, as they say, um, literally they say that, <laughs> to get here. <laughs> and um, I think that I I maybe... Um, straddled that line between a a like good Asian daughter who played piano and tried to do well at math um, to being quite uh, precocious so you know s- loud and and sneaky and vivacious and rule-breaking um, those types of things, as opposed to my brother, who is 10 years older than me, who is um, very, very, very different from me. Um, and I, I, I'm i sure that had to do with my Canadian upbringing. Um, and, you know, being a person of color in a, in a space that didn't have that for a while, now it very much does. Um, and kind of trying to find my place and not really figuring that out probably until university Mm -hmm. and still today yeah yeah and and with you being that way what was the dynamic like with your your parents then you being this sort of like vivacious rule breaker and them being immigrant parents yeah rocky I think um as as naturally as naturally it would be um and but you know to be honest, I think over time I just sort of wore them down and the country and being here sort of wore them down as well. And I think sort of seeing that being that way didn't affect the things that they cared about, which was, again, grades and and um, conventionality in some ways, like a conventionally healthy person. Um, and once they saw that that wasn't sort of an issue and that I was that that strong-headedness could also be seen as ambition and that um, the rule-breaking could also be seen as um, risk-taking and there, that there were good sides to all those qualities mm. that they kind of mellowed out a bit. But mm-hmm. I also moved away, so That's a right. lot of that, yeah. So, when you know, when you move away and you come back, you, things are different. Absolutely, back, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I get that for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and if you were going to tell me a bit more about your dad and your mom and tell me about what they're like, mm-hmm. I'd love to know. Okay. <laughs> this is like the first time anybody has ever asked me this. Um, certainly on in a public space. Um, my dad is very like militantly um, on time and rule following and by the book. And um, he's, he's logical and, and, and uh, that side practical. Um, my mom is much more... Um, like free spirited and uh, scattered in other ways as well. Um, she also is schizophrenic, so that's also which is something that uh, you know came up later in her life, um, which of course throws things off for sure for her. Like and so her personality is manic sometimes, and um, but she's always been much more free-spirited and even though she is still you know part of that kind of conventional box of an Asian parent you know um, a stereotypical way and yeah so the they're very yin and yang in that way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and and you see bits of yourself in them or did you oh sort of, for sure definitely yeah I guess we all do yeah I you think know, we try to of, break away and then we're like oh actually. yeah for sure my most you know, you, you pay for therapy and in the end they're like, well, this comes down to your dad issues. And you're like, oh, great. (laughs) You know, like (laughs) I was hoping it was something else, but it's always your parents in some way. And then you're like, come on. Like I want to be slightly different, but it really does boil down to, Mm -hmm. to them, you know, no surprise. Like I guess every single book on therapy was right. It really is them. And tell me about you. What were you like as a kid and as a teen? Um, so again, that rebellious phase still continued on as a teen. Um, I wanted to go into the arts and I was always interested in in the arts, which is very, which is really um, a parent's nightmare, I think, uh, <laughs> particularly my parents and I think particularly Asian parents' nightmare. But, you know, by some by some freak chance, I, I was able to pursue that. Um but only if I sort of pursued it in an adjacent way. So I was able to go to um, a university that allowed me to do basically two degrees at once, which was like a BFA and a BA. So I did English Lit and Visual Culture Theory. And, um, and this U- was in Toronto, right? That's right, yeah, yeah at yeah. U of T. And then I was able to do like studio classes at Sheridan. So your standard foundations courses for four years, um, photography, design, painting, drawing, et cetera. Um, so I o- always found like a workaround around that. And then when I went on to do my master's, it wasn't an MFA, it was an MA, but it was mm-hmm. in, again, um, visual and identity studies. So there were all these kind of other ways I was able to integrate um, something like art into something that was acceptable or perhaps more more practical um, for my parents to swallow. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so that's so interesting. I was just as you were talking, I was like, oh yes, it's like checking off boxes. Like that's you know, like I can put that in a conventional box, and then it'll be okay with mom mm-hmm. and dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I I, I understand yeah. that experience quite well. I'm sure. I'm sure you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
And yeah, what which I guess um, serendipitously or ironically, it, it worked out better that way for me to not have gone full blown into um, the making of the work because the making of the work is what turn, turns out I was a lot less interested in than talking about the work. Mm. And this this interest in in art, I, I assume this came at a young age. So where where did this come from? I don't know. Um, my, I guess I always had like uh, the ability to sort of um, draw and be creative and make when I was young. I did it quite a lot and um, and that wasn't discouraged by my parents. I, I wouldn't say it was encouraged, but they were, you know, they, they were impressed by it. They liked it and it certainly kept me busy. I had no trouble um, keeping to myself and just making things, drawing things, creating things, um, destroying them and rebuilding them. Like I could entertain myself for hours and hours with that. So that was never um, a problem. They never tried to take that away from me. Um, and so I think that just continued on in my life mm. and this, this attraction or this draw to aesthetics. Right. right. So it wasn't something that, that they did. It was something that you had sort of naturally developed on your own. I just had, I think I had a really wild imagination Mm. and that needed some type of outlet. Yeah. And, you know, I was, I spent a lot of time by myself. I was parked in front of the TV a lot, but that TV channel was a lot of these like um, crafting, making things. And I just always, I was glued to that, you know, I would write these multi-noveled like, um, uh, comic books that I would make as a little kid, four, five, six years old, that where I do series like volumes. Wow. And I'm just, and I don't know, I don't know that many kids that do that. I used to do studies of work. So I would do four, five, six versions of something, um, the same image. Cause I'd like, I, I felt like it could be better. Mm. And okay. Yeah. I think that speaks to some weird OCD stuff, but I think it also <laughs> speaks to, um, you know, the fact that I, I, I was pretty dedicated to it. It wasn't kind of a one and done thing. Mm. Yeah. You're talking about this now. I'll put a pin in this, but I'll mention it. So I'm saying it out loud and I won't, I won't forget it. But what you're talking about now reminds me of a few things that you said during your creative mornings presentation, uh, around the second pillar. I I feel like the global theme for it was critical Mm. and you had three sort of pillars that you you operate by mm-hmm. from this lens and what you're talking about sort of reminds me of, of the second one but we, we can talk about that later sure. I do you want to ask about that for sure but I do want to know about your chapter in New York that's, okay that's where you did your master's yeah. before coming back here that's right but tell me more tell me the story of your experience there sure and how it uh opened you up how it challenged you all of those things yeah definitely um it's a funny it's a funny story and a funny time um I had come back from uh, come back to Vancouver, having lived in Toronto for five years at that point, and uh, you know from ages seventeen to twenty two, and went to school there. So I left here like straight out of high school, basically, and I had an apartment here. And um, when I returned, I I didn't fully think um, that I was going to return, but it just sort of okay, we're done school. It's a natural thing to do. Came back 
and then felt very, uh, start working at galleries as per usual and felt very, um, unsettled and then still had all these kind of, um, burning questions in my mind about, I felt like I just scratched the surface of some of the things that, I, uh, we began talking about in visual culture. I should say that, um, in my final two years at, in, in, at U of T, we were able to take a new course um, called Visual Culture Theory um, in instead of of the art history classes. So it, it it counted for the same thing. So of course I was like, oh, I'll give this a try. Had a little taste of it, loved it. Scrapped all the other art history courses, um, not all of them, but um, and then went full blown into this. So took courses in. Uh, post-colonial theory, in new media studies, in consumerism culture, in identity and race politics. Like these were all the, the, yeah, and how images make meaning, in other mm-hmm. words. Mm-hmm. And I found that really exciting. And then it just ended. And then back to Vancouver. Um, and so I flipped over all those, the texts that we we had and just took a look at who who are these folks that wrote wrote these texts. And what I found is that they were all in one place, and that was at NYU. And that I just, I think I, I flipped open my laptop and did a quick Google search and saw that they were putting together a new program, a master's program, in this very thing. Mm. So I applied, got in, and went there, and uh, there was maybe eight other folks in it as well, all from different parts of the world and the U.S., and we truly did guinea pig the program. Um, so for better, for worse, mostly for worse, I'd say. Um, there were a lot of kinks to work out. Um, and I felt very much uh, on, on my own. Learned great stuff, but it was a very much a, um, like piece it together on your own. So a little bit, a few courses from here, a few courses from there, a few courses. So I took courses in all the different um, subjects, so from political science, I took a course. From film studies, I took a course. Um, from East Asian studies, I took a course. Like mm. so, And then I made something out of it at the end, a thesis, mm, okay. right, to, yeah. to defend. And um, all the while also trying to um, enjoy the city and experience New York, which was also very hard to do. Um, the first... And when I when I lived there, I lived in quite a rough neighborhood um, in in Bed Stuy, Brooklyn. And before uh, it was cool, <laughs> way before, yeah. way before it's, it was starting to get cool for sure, and I could oh, yeah. feel it. Uh, but it was still um, a, a little a little rough around the edges for sure uh, at this time. This was quite a long time ago now, but it was also the time of um, you know the Olympics being in China. There was it was also the time of the um, stock market crash. So Wall Street was really interesting. Mm-hmm. It was also um, Obama being elected. Um, so what like, was the air like there? The atmosphere, just like the energy? Ma- like just, it was so frenzied. It was really exciting. I mean, I went to see Obama um, rally in a at Washington Square Park in front of the school. It was... It, it was like something was happening at any moment and, and trying to kind of experience that while straddling school and staying afloat or you know um like alive um was hard Mm. and my entire experience there I I feel like was a bit of a a whirlwind this was a few years yeah um and only really in my final year did I start to feel a little bit more um settled 
and that's pretty much when I had to leave uh, visa wise I had to get out of there so and I worked um, for a year after there as well um, yeah it was it was tough I you wanted to stay I did um, at the end the entire time I wanted to get out of there it was hard being it was hard being a lot of things but it was hard being poor it was hard being Canadian um a little bit you know it just it was hard being young and in in a very intensive school it was hard being unsupported by that school mm. um a lot of different things and um you know finding oneself and um wanting to have fun and wanting to do well still because you've just spent so so much money mm. being there um yeah it was it was a really interesting time i also as like a side note like lived above a dead body for a year and what that oh my was gosh. A, yes so someone passed in the yes yes could yes you smell it oh yes for a year and it got really really bad oh my goodness yeah so Ugh. and basically discovered it anyway I don't need to get in that's a really it's a it's a good story <laughs> though but uh um but that is a story for another time for another day a pretty wild one but mm. uh yeah it really it seemed like a short amount of time but many many things happened and many things happened in the world at that time um and you know honestly things like 9/11 and and they was still it was very felt so it was time to come home for various reasons yeah i don't i don't know if i would have i did not unpack my um bags actually I did not unpack my suitcase for I think maybe six months or so after you know of course I'd pull things out here and there but it, it just it, it didn't feel like um it felt temporary coming back mm, okay. it just felt it felt and then I mean and that was 12 years ago right and then so life happened exactly and right. just yeah it was it was a matter of I, it felt sleepy here and sometimes it still does um mm -hmm. and so everything that I had just spent time working on it wasn't it wasn't something that um I felt like was was in the air I guess it wasn't the zeitgeist and mm -hmm. um keep in mind too that the last time I had properly lived here in Vancouver was when I was in high school right so I had grown up in that time I guess and my friends um were of like a different group wonderful but you know our interests are different um yeah you evolved you had a whole other experience that, yeah that changed you and and obviously you'll come back so so different and, for sure yeah and as somebody a different perspective totally too, right living in a different city with so much vibrancy and and, and so much multiculturalism and just so much art and culture that just, it hits you in the face there. Where it does. You, you sort of need to seek it out in a, in a city like Vancouver. Sure. On a, on a, you just have to put more effort you to do, find it. You do. And um, mm -hmm. I was in academia, hard, like very deeply in academia. And that's, that's a bubble in its, of its own, which I think is problematic for different reasons. But um, when you're, when that bubbles, when you're out of that bubble, you feel it a lot. Um, you know, you're just so engrossed in it, right? You're surrounded by talking about these these subjects that are heavy. Well, they, they don't even seem heavy at the time because you're in it. Mm -hmm. um, and then it just stops completely. There's a hard stop and that silence can be deafening almost. Yeah. Um, and as, as everybody knows, it's hard to um, 
build a community or a circle of friends. You know, this as well may coming mm -hmm. having lived here later on as um, you know, later in your adulthood, right? I think um finding those people you're very good at it. So <laughs> it's um but finding those people with like minded interests, it it took time as well. Mm -hmm. And so there was a, definitely a period here when I first returned where I just felt lonely, I think, in in different ways. I love to I mean not love to, but I'm just I'm curious does does the chapter in New York feel somewhat unfinished or uh, have you did you ever feel that way or were you more like no you came home and that was what was supposed to happen and there was a piece around that yeah I I think I almost wouldn't phrase it as I came home I think I would say I came to, back to Vancouver which hadn't felt like home uh, and then I made that place my home so I I, I wouldn't say um, it's unfinished I I feel like that chapter has closed, um, but it's also taken over a decade for that to happen. Mm. Mm -hmm. When I came back, I remember talking to somebody and, and basically they said, uh, well, you know, you can, you can um, leave and come back when, when these things are happening in the city, like when it becomes part of our cultural social fabric to discuss certain issues and see art um, in, in, our, on our walls and in our galleries and in our homes and to see um, topics and people speak about people of color and all these things. Or so you can come back and because it will happen and mm -hmm. you can see it um, or you can stay and make it happen and mm. contribute to making it happen. And so something shifted there for me and I decided that I would stick around and, you know, try to take matters into my own hands a little bit mm. and make things happen. Yeah, I know there is this, um, sometimes I get this this pang. I have a, a friend of mine who she and her husband split their time and they're quite involved in, in arts and culture in New York. And um, and she had posted something the other day on Instagram and she had seen the the new piece at, at uh, the New York City Ballet. Mm -hmm. And it was the performance piece that Solange Knowles had wow. created an orchestral piece to go along with the dancing and I remember that pang because I had heard about this show and I was and you know I had seen her when she performed at the Rennie Museum wow yeah. and you know when she had uh, come into town I think maybe five years ago or so and I remember that pang of I really wish I'd be able to see something something like that mm -hmm. but I also resonate with what you're saying too where you're like well then be part of making that happen here or be part of that that fabric that allows that to be the way that it could be here. Absolutely. And I definitely think you do do that. Maybe. I hope so in my own little way. I yeah, hope that, and that you I do. do. And I think that maybe those opportunities would be more difficult for us there just because of resources and competition, other sorts of things. So I try to think about that. Mm. It's a real, not so much grass is always greener, but wherever you are, there you are mm. kind of thing. And so I try to keep that in mind. But I absolutely, I have... FOMO out the wazoo <laughs> and I have a lot of constant pangs my I as you know I practice like uh, leisure leisurely anxiety so <laughs> um I Instagram is the worst for that too totally oh right? absolutely so let's let's go now that uh, you're here in Vancouver what did you start to do I know that you were teaching mm -hmm. and you were kind of consulting mm -hmm. you were doing all these these things to, mm -hmm. to build this life and career for yourself here. Sure. 
Um, I actually started in galleries. So I went back to what I knew most, um, which is what I uh, did in undergrad when I was 18. I uh, worked in art galleries. And that was my first um, serious sort of, my, my first serious job, right? And I continued one kind of begets the other, begets the other. So that's sort of how, you know, everyone said, oh, like, this is, this must have been, you know, your aspiration or whatever, something that you were striving for. But it really just fell into me, you know, I just one led to the other, led to the other, um, because you have experience in one. So, of course, you build up your CV and that's how you get another one and another one. So it just naturally happened. And I went back to that here because there wasn't, I thought maybe it'd be the closest to, to those discussions that I had had in New York. Um, it wasn't, um, it was fulfilling in other ways, but, um, it certainly was, um, either nonprofit, which I worked in or retail. So that was the art, my art experience here working in galleries. Um, and I like both of those things as well for different reasons. Um, so I started working in the galleries and worked my way up. When I say up, um, I just mean, um, you know, on to the next one and the next one, one's a little bit bigger, a little bit flashier. And all along the way, I would have people coming into the galleries asking the same questions, artists, I mean, um, about the industry and um, how to navigate it. And so I thought, okay, instead of doing this uh, every single time, why don't I just do it once and have one big seminar? So that's what I did. And then it was so well attended, I did it again, start offering it twice a year. And then Langara contacted me to make it into a course. So I did that in the evenings after working at the gallery. Um, and then people asked for private consultations. So I did that on the weekends when I wasn't working at the gallery. And then basically all of that, the, the advisement, the consultations, it overtook the gallery part. Um, but taking that final leap into making it an actual, into making it my, my sole job, my, what I do day in and day out was, took me a long time. Right. Yeah. yeah. Baby steps. Yeah. And it's there were two, there were two baby. I think yeah. I mm. really, really leaned on, um, the reputation, even though it was, it was not, it didn't make sense. Um, it didn't make sense in terms of what I enjoy doing more. It didn't make sense in terms of like monetarily, everything pointed at the consultations, um, make more sense. You should be doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I just, I didn't listen for a very long time. And then, and then I finally did. Uh, um, and of course, uh, the only thing I wish is that it happened sooner. Mm. Um, but yeah, here we are, I think about six, seven years into it. Yeah. And, uh, and that's how it, that's kind of how it began very, very organically and with a lot of resistance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I remember you saying in the last conversation that, that we had that, you know, there was slight fears of no one would take you seriously or that you felt that working gallery in galleries legitimized you and there are those there are those insecurities before you take leaps of faith in into something else mm -hmm. I mean I, I felt that before so I, I know I know what you mean you're just like no but my identity is this absolutely and I just thought the second I stopped people would say well you don't work there anymore how would you know? and 
nobody ever asked and people didn't even know I were, had ever worked there. It was like that just got erased from my, from my history. And uh, I thought it meant something. And to others, it really, it really didn't. Mm-hmm. It really doesn't. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so funny how our, our, the narratives in our heads, the, the loops that they create of just fear and insecurity until you just make a tiny little it's step true. and you're like, oh, you know, the flow of this water is pretty awesome. Absolutely. <laughs> and what's weird is that you, I've never asked somebody, hey, can I see your previous work experience and CV <laughs> yeah. before you do any, like, I haven't asked my dentist where he, like, where other places he's worked on or, yeah. you know, other mouths that he's worked on or anything like that. We just, I've never asked anybody to prove that they're an expert in their field before. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure why I was so, so dead set on people asking me. Hmm. That's interesting. I think it contributes yeah. and I learned a lot there. And everything yeah, yeah. I, everything I'm, I'm telling my clients is because of my times in galleries, of course. Um, but no one has ever said, okay, prove it or, or anything. Yeah. Which is, that's, that's nice. So Dazed and Confucius, mm-hmm. full-time 2016. Yeah. And there is another consultant that was once a client and, and he works out of the Victoria office. So that's you've right. since expanded territory as well. And you have a small team of writers and web designers yes. and admin. So yes. that's wonderful yeah. that it's grown. Yes, I think so. And, you know, it, um, and we're feeling growing pains again. I think we are on the verge of expanding again. So that's scary and exciting. Mm-hmm. But I'm hoping to take a page from my old life and, and not wait on it so long. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's exciting mm-hmm. for you. Are you feeling an expansion in your chest when you think of you you expanding the practice too? Um, I feel, I think, the, f- the same feeling I felt when I moved after 17 years into a new place. Like, it's not it's not so much, um, it's like the trepidation or, or anxiety around how much, how tremendous amount of work there is to move, to, to do. You basically break everything down again to build Mm. it back up. Mm. And Mm -hmm. yes, that's exciting, but I haven't felt the excitement part yet. I feel Mm. the, the trepidation part more. Do you feel excitement often? I do, but about, you know, oh, the food's coming to the table. Like, that's probably when I feel the most excited. I'm with you on that one. Yes. Right? Um, yeah, I, those kinds of things. So I feel, right. I think, little little tiny bursts of joy a lot. Or, you know, maybe I see a cat or dog on the street that I'm allowed to pet. Like, these sorts of things. But in terms of my own, my own business, um, a lot of that comes from my, my dad and that extremely practical-minded headspace that um, is like, okay, let me see the results before I, I get any, before I show any excitement. Mm-hmm. I'd love to know about being an, a, a great art consultant. And are there innate skills that you feel a, a great art consultant should have? Yeah. So I think like any artist consultant or advisor or um listener I think it's important to meet the person where they are and that's something in early days I I had trouble with where I um, felt like they needed to get um, the bang for their buck I needed to give them the most 
the greatest experience I could possibly give them, which meant jam packing our one hour sessions or half hour sessions together with as much information as possible. Basically four years worth of art school plus another two years worth of business school rammed into half an hour. Um, and it They're was freaking very, out. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it was very overwhelming. Um, and to me, it's nothing because it's to me, um, I see them on their like, you are here mall map and I, and they need to get to, and they want to walk to, uh, Aritzia. And I'm like, okay, go down the left, turn right and, and you get here. Right. Um, so I can see it. I can see them, um, in the woods. That's no problem. Right. But for them, they're in it, so they can't see it as well. So it's not as, uh, it's overwhelming. I, that's basically what it comes down to. It can be really overwhelming to tell them steps, you know, they're on step three and I tell them steps four to a hundred. Um, so instead after figuring this out, you know, we'll, we'll talk about step four mm. and five. I like the philosophy of, of meeting people where, where they are in, in terms of your job. I mean, it, you know, for example, all great therapists, you know, they meet you where you are or a good friend mm-hmm. will meet you where you are. So I really, I really love that. Because, yes. You know, or like a personal yes. trainer. Yeah. I can only imagine I've never gone to the gym, but, um, you know, I'm sure you just can't, you can't run a marathon right away. You have to work up to it. Absolutely. So, yeah. 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 And when an artist comes to you and approaches you to potentially work together, do you have this intuition when you when you meet them whether this person will have a, a sustainable, successful art career? Can they or can you build someone into that? Mm-hmm. I think everybody can be built into that. So again, just going back to that gym metaphor, it's just you do the work and you will become stronger. That's just it. It's not um, magic. It's not a trick. It it just is. Right. So everybody can become stronger. But I get that question a lot. Like, do I ever see people who are beyond hope or, you know, who I'm like, oh, there's no chance here. Like, don't quit your day job. Um, And the only times that I've maybe thought, okay, this. What you know, your goals are loftier than than what 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 you have or what you're able to put in is only because of work ethic It's only because they're just not willing to put in or not able to put in the time that Mm. it will take or they lack that patience and and both of those things are it's trouble like it's it doesn't make for um a successful equation you have to have patience and you have to put in the time and the practice and the practice absolutely and so Mm. something that you understand well because you when you were younger you would practice over and That's over right. when you were, when <laughs> you were drawing. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I intended your creative mornings, which a few months ago when I thought it was so brilliant and it was smart and it was funny. I learned so much. I actually brought, remember how you got us to draw something? Yes. I think I have it somewhere here. Yeah, I see it. Do you see <laughs> Okay, so the running joke among my, my friends. So she, so so Penny Lane made everybody in, in the creative mornings audience draw a, a self-portrait. And it's a running joke in my group of friends that I'm a terrible drawer. There's a, there's a game they love to play where you have to, um, everyone gets a card, you have to draw it and then pass it on and someone needs to guess it. No one ever wants to be on the other side of me. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be on the other hilarious. side of me. Yeah. So I was actually quite proud of my self-portrait that I did here. I was like, wow, I think this is the most realistic. <laughs> the hair. 
is really bang on. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I'm very proud of it. Um, it's very tiny. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, to, to go back to your, your talk, the theme was critical. Mm. And you had named three pillars that you sort of operate from when you're looking at this lens, intention, practice, and context. And I'd love for you to explain to listeners what you mean by that. Sure. Um, just a little bit of background on on the theme as well. It was critical. The theme is critical. Creative Mornings has a different theme every month, and um, how I interpreted that was basically my job is to be critical about art and you know good and bad art. And what's frustrating to me is that fine art um, out out of all the types of art is. Um, like performing arts or poetry, writing, music, it's the only one that people find extremely subjective. So you're pretty much not allowed to say whether or not uh, something is good or bad, because if you say that, you have to prove that in some way. And I find that frustrating because that is my entire being, my existence and my, you know, why people pay me money is based off of saying whether art is good or bad, right? And everything in between, of course. Um, so my hope was to give some folks at least the tools that I use for determining whether something can be considered good art. Um, and those were those three things. So intention, what were you getting at here? What was the message here? Um, and, and have you hit it, right? How close are you to that message? Has it come across and to whom, right? That's intention. Um, practice. And that is what we were saying straight up, doing something again and again, skill. Um, we can't, we cannot eliminate that. I think a lot of, um, a lot of folks think that there's some, there's like a natural gift inside you and you know, you can't, and that might be the case, but you still have to practice. There's still skill involved. There's learning and mentorship and study. Um, so that's skill, uh, or practice rather. Um, and the last one is context. And that's more about understanding where you are and how you're situated in the grand scheme of things. The time that you're in, um, the time, the canon that you're in. Um, what If what you're saying resonates more now, later, or before, do you have a new way to look at an old idea? Um, and that that involves knowing who's come before you, who's who's alongside of you, and who's coming, who's ahead. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's that last part, context. Right. And knowing what's, like you said, what's happening in the world. That's and it. Yeah. And what, how are you commenting on it? That's know, right. Yeah. With your art. And that matters about who's come before, I think. Yeah. Right. 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 I have a question just, that just popped into my mind, and I'm going to ask it now before I forget it. But I was reading this New York Times article mm. uh, about a very young artist in New York, I think six years old. I, I forget his name. It's a more recent article. And... Uh, he, his paintings, um, they're selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I, I took a look at them and I thought to myself, That's, that looks to me, looks pretty good for a six-year-old. And I'm wondering as an artist consultant, with yeah. someone who's that young, if he were, say, to be your client, how would you nurture him from such a young age to make sure that he just sort of stays on track with his talent? Yeah. You know what? I have a lot of young clients, but they're not six years old. Young. Mm -hmm. They're like in their early 20s and, and such. And honestly, for him, I think it's important to just be a kid and live his life. And so that that would be the main thing that I, I think I would just always come back to. Is this the thing that you want to do? Do you still want to do this? Do you still like doing this? 
And honestly, it's not that dissimilar from what I would tell my current clients. This is still resonating with you. And, and when you wake up and before you go to sleep, do you still think about this and live, breathe and taste this? Right. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's, that's probably something I would, you know, keep in mind for him, yeah. um, to, to make sure that it still serves him. Right. Right. Because I was getting, I was reading the article and looking at the image they took of him as a six-year-old and, you know, he's sort of leaning back on a, on a couch and his head was back and he was looking at an angle at the camera. And I was like, this is a very artistic photo of this (laughs) child. (laughs) And I just got that pang of like, oh, I hope this isn't, you know, like watching a child TV or actor. Yeah. Yeah. You hope it doesn't get weird. Yeah. Yeah. You hope it doesn't Haley Joe Osmond like out of it. Exactly. Totally. Yeah. Um, And it might, you know, (laughs) money and fame, it always goes that way. Right. Can I ask, did the paintings, were they, what genre were they? Were they realism or is it? No, no, they weren't. They were more surreal. I would say like a a little bit Picasso, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A little Picasso, a little, maybe more than that, than surreal. Um, But they weren't. No, they weren't realistic. And were they figurative, like of people? Yeah, yeah. Some, okay. I, the one that stood out to me looked like um, it almost looked like a bored ape NFT, but mm. with Picasso like features. Gotcha. So yeah. a little bit graphic yeah. as well. Okay. Oh, yes. Yes. Neat. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, one big thing is that the more life he lives and the more he's exposed to other types of artwork, that will just change. I think. Right. So right. that would be something that I would strongly recommend. And again, I recommend that for you know, my clients from six to 60 to a mm-hmm. hundred, mm. um, that you, you keep art in your life. Right. And that you see it with an open mind. It mm. certainly is a pet peeve when, when they don't. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. I have a question about more so about, um, collecting, just being an art lover sure. myself and, you know, finding this call to maybe start a fledging fledgling collection myself. <laughs> I would just love your lens on what are the things that you feel I should keep in mind when I'm collecting works? I mean, I know that I should love the art that I buy and be passionate for, but what makes for a meaningful, intentional collection? Sure. That's a great question. Um, Some folks like to think about whether the artwork will appreciate. So that's something that you might want to think about as well. Um, so where this artist is at in their career, um, are they just kind of on the cusp of something huge or are they kind of already in it and, and this sort of thing? Um, you've had lots of great guests on your show who very much, um, fit that description Mm -hmm. and their work is definitely appreciating. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. I think that's for a different type of collector who wants to, you know, they're buying artwork a little bit like, um, investing in, they're investing, right? So stocks or something Mm -hmm. like that. So, um, taking a look at who is creating the work and where they are in their career, um, is one thing for me, of course, especially with an early collection and, and buying small works, I'm, I have to connect with the work more than anything. And I also like to see whether or not something I already have similar things in my collection, right? Mm. So if it's something that is different um, and you're attracted to it, I think it's important to ask yourself, well, one, why? 
why? What is it about this piece that I'm attracted to? Will I think about it again? You know? Mm. And how does it fit with the rest of my collection? Right. Which I really, you know, which I think is really important as well. It's like buying clothing, right? You're, if there's something a little bit outlandish out there, does it, are there other things I could wear with it? Are there other things I could match with it? And this is, of course, in a salon hanging in your home. If you have a small home like I do, um, a salon hanging is particularly important. So it's like how these all kind of connect and, 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 and rejig together like a puzzle. And what you'll find is that the most interesting collections are ones that are wildly varied. So old, old work with contemporary work, photography with painting, textured work with flat work, graphic work with realism, um, and everything in between. Mm-hmm. And when you put those next to each other and you have variety, um, th- that's when, it, you know, you have magic, I think. Right. But yet it still all makes sense despite the medium. As opposed to a bunch of one thing and then one outlier mm. in there, right? So it's mm-hmm. like, if you're going to go different, go, go different. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah, because I know that there are, you know, several collectors I know that that typically collect around a theme, for mm-hmm. example. And mm-hmm. and even if it's all different mediums, once you see it all, you're like, oh, yes, this belongs to this private collection because this is the theme that they collect right. around. Right, So that it just ends up making sense. Exactly. Yeah. Right? But they yeah. could all look different. But they could all look different. Exactly. So mm-hmm. so building something around a theme or concept is a, is a wonderful way um, I like to see where the holes are in my collection, try to fill them. Oh, okay. Yeah. So again, yeah. things that, you know, maybe I don't have a lot of text-based pieces. I might look for a text-based piece and keep my mm. eye out for that mm-hmm. next time. Um, just like, again, I mean, I'm coming back to clothes, but I tend to be attracted to one thing. So I keep going for it and then I have to stop myself. Do you ever do that? Like in a store where you're yeah. like, yeah, I've picked up this same color <laughs> and sweatshirt or silhouette, and you're like, I have a million. Of yes, these. exactly, right? A million, but exactly, yeah. <laughs> right? Like you're just attracted to it, and you know that about yourself. So maybe you have to, and you ask somebody, and they say, "Don't you have that right. in blue? Don't you have that already?" And you're mm-hmm. like, "Yep." And you, to you, you're like, "No, that's a little bit different. The sleeves are slightly shorter, but it's actually pretty much the same thing." Yeah, I have to stop myself and put it back in. Like, okay, let's change up this narrative a little bit. Right. So it's the same thing with artwork. We're attracted to something, maybe try to unthink that. Right. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's a couple of artists that are coming to mind that I've been closely watching. One of them is now in the Gagosian and I'm like, okay, well that's out of reach now. Um, I mean, she's young and she's super talented and she does this thing where they look like, um, Renaissance women. Mm. Um, but then their face, they have no face. It'll just be like their hair wrapped in an updo and her face is wrapped in, like the woman's face would be wrapped in hair and an updo so you don't see the face or it's flowers. Oh, wow. Oh, it's so, so beautiful, but also haunting. slightly haunting. Yeah. Yeah, slightly sure. haunting. And then there's this great, great um, realist painter from Japan, uh, Morimoto. It's Morimoto Studio. And I think he he does, he just did something in, I think a show in, in Toronto, but mm-hmm. I love his work. The way he portrays neon in oh, yes. painting, I'm like, wow. But I also feel like he's on the up right now too. Like that For his, a while now, for yeah, sure. Okay. For sure. Yes. Yes. We spoke at a a panel in New York together oh, at, okay. at the Brooklyn Academy of Music a long, long time ago, actually. It was like very exciting. But yes, absolutely. Yes, yeah. Um, so, another again, thing, I'm like attracted to the, they just got out of reach. Like if you, you know. For sure. And I think what I would do, May, is maybe 
you know, you put together something of these people mm-hmm. and then you ask somebody who's in the arts, like myself or other people, who is the equivalent of this person? Mm. That's what I ask some right. clients to do, um, ones that I'm selling to. And they're like, oh, I'm looking for something like this, but it can't be that. So who's who's the person, you know, five steps down from that? Right. Right. But working in the same um, ilk, right, as them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Another fun thing to do is lots of friends will ask. Um, I mean, Zoe has asked, for example, to um, have me come and, and hang their space, like mm. take everything down and rehang it again. Mm-hmm. And just a bunch, everything, things that they might not even think um, you know, like a letter somebody wrote you or, um, a little object or a keepsake from before and just kind of have it all out and then leave me alone with it for a couple hours mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then we, we hang space. And I've asked other people to do that for me. Very cool. Just kind of a new way of looking at things that you already have. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is one of the, one of the more, um, one of the things I learned working at Rennie and having such proximity to private collection and the art team there to ask a lot of questions, I remember learning and asking about curation. And it was so fascinating for me to like finally understand that when you walk into a museum or a space, that there's a story being told with placement. And I was blown away. There was one particular group show and there was a painting that was uh, on one of the walls when you were you were leaving, and there was a ve- there was a reason why um, Bob wanted it there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Wow, that reason w- was it?" And I, th- I believe it was a handbag or an accessory. Mm. And he wanted to feel like it was an item that you were grabbing before you left mm. the home. Kind Interesting, of yeah. And I I know I'm not doing that complete justice, but in telling that, what I'm trying to say is is I didn't realize that there is a spatial storytelling that is is happening and that paintings or or artwork is actually speaking to each other in a space completely which i i just it blew my mind and i just uh, it makes me love museums and and spaces like this even more and a good hang yeah i Mm -hmm. always say if there's if you ever walk into a, a space um um a gallery or museum and you're like wow this looks good but you don't know why it's because of the curator it's because of what we do to make it have that feeling and resonate so but you don't know why like you can't super identify it right it's not because of something sensationalist that's happened and they've done this crazy thing or there's this huge sculpture or whatever it's the energy that that yeah, it's like a subtle feeling it's a subtle feeling i suppose it's like a feng shui you know, of mm. a space, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that goes in the order in which you, you're, you're putting things and um, and how exactly as you put it, they are playing off of each other and off of you, right? And where you are, everything's... So I always encourage my clients to... My first thing I say is like, have you gotten the um, floor plan of the space if, they're, if they have a show mm-hmm. coming up? And then I say, have you built the maquette of that space so that we can hang it? together ahead of time you know um, in a tiny version of it Mm. Um, because the space is everything Mm -hmm. I mean same thing with your home how everything is placed and and how it makes you feel that's why we people who have the means to hire interior designers to create this this flow and this look and you walk in you're like oh I get it like this place is 
is supposed to feel like a museum or this place is supposed to feel rustic country chic or you got whatever, it you know yeah and, you got it yeah. I can't even imagine what it would be like to have ownership of that you know the means basically to mm-hmm. to make a space exactly as you want it to be right yeah yeah uh I just I I so much love learning about the art world all the time and I, I I believe it was it was Chris Rennie had suggested that I read this book called Seven Days in the Art World. Mm. Yeah, and he was just like, it just talks about different various facets of the art business and maybe what happens within it. And I just remember being like, holy, there's so many cogs in this this machine for of sure. the art world that totally. I didn't understand before. But and that's even just like one, one side of it too, totally, right? Right, yeah. yeah. And it was a dishy kind of book as well, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, but um, I I don't know if you heard of the uh, Intersections podcast. It's the new. It's sort of a. I guess it's new, newish. And is it is it Art Basil or Art Basil? Basil. Basil. Yeah. Okay, I always mess this up. But you know, Basil. people people say both, it. and everybody knows. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Well, it's the global art director of Art Basil that is the host of this show. And I listened to a couple of, of episodes, and I really, really enjoyed the episodes with Swizz Beats. Okay. Um, who, for people who don't know him, he's an award-winning musician and producer. He's also the husband of Alicia Keys um, and also a prolific art collector right now. He's the Dean Collection, I believe it is. And uh, another one with RM, who anyone who's into K-pop knows he's the leader of BTS. Mm. And both of them are, are people of color. They're both deeply intelligent. Their knowledge of art is, is impressive. And they're really passionate about collecting art for others to enjoy. And so I, I'm wondering if, I'm curious if you've observed anything about this new wave of newer um, POC collectors. And I know we're still talking about people who are people who are still in privilege and can 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 collect at this level, but I feel I get the sense that they're truly collecting to share the art with the the public and not just hoarding it for their own just in their homes for no one to see. Mm-hmm. Which I guess is is fine too if that's your if you, that's what you want. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. I just I th- I just thought it was really beautiful to see. Um, people of color who are fairly young, um, creating these meaningful collections. Completely. I think so too. And I do think it kind of harkens back to the original purpose. Well, not, I mean, I think that is the purpose of artwork, right? And I think that perhaps um, some of these new collectors are really, really tapping into that, um, these young up-and-coming collectors, which is that the purpose of art is meant to be shared and it is meant to be in a public scene right, and is meant to be interacted with um, and talked about, and, and it isn't meant to be tucked and hidden away. Um, I sit on the board for VGH, um, the, the hospital collection, and that is really our mandate to the core, like again and again and again, is that art is supposed to make you feel full stop, right? Mm. Just feel. And... and um, I, I think that is only applicable when that number can, you know, is greater. We can make that happen as much as possible. Um, rather than just me looking at the same piece and only me looking at that piece all the time. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. And what's lovely is that now w- there are a lot of different means to be able to share that. 
we don't have to just have truckloads of people coming through our home every day and looking at our collection and talking about it. Um, of course, whenever there is an open studio or open house, it's wonderful, but I completely understand that this is a private space, but we are able to share our collections more in so many different ways on blogs, on online, on social media and talk about them and interact with the community about them. Mm -hmm. And then it again brings artwork back to its original purpose. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm finding myself more and more sharing art that I like on, on my social, you know, even if it's just a, a share with no words from me, just have a look at this. I saw this. It makes me feel this way. And I'm just curious if it'll make you feel a certain way. And absolutely, you know, even if someone doesn't reach out to me, I, I, I saw this, it, it struck yeah. a chord. I hope yeah, it strikes here. a chord with you. I'm, just I'm gonna, sharing it. Yeah. I'm going to share. Yeah. Um, so I am a huge fan of anime and oh, animation. I know. <laughs> I know. And dance. And dance. Little, yeah. 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 And so uh, I, I'm curious to know if you've seen uh, any of these kind of incredible animated shows. One is called Arcane. No, but you yeah. did pass it on to me. Yes. Me, oh, yes. And I saw oh, the yes. other one, Love and Knowing, the monsters, the robots. Oh, yes. Yes. That one. Um, Love, sex, sex, and robots. robots. Something like, yes, yes. yes. Mm -hmm. I watched mm -hmm. those. Okay, yeah. okay. Okay, so you haven't seen Arcane yet. No. But uh, there's another one that I watched recently. So um, again, this is kind of, um, I love this because I'm finding that musicians are finding all of these really new artistic ways to share their music. So Kid Cudi, mm -hmm. he had a new album coming out. Okay. And so he created this full... Um, full like 90 minute animation and it was around a love story amazing that featured music from the new album it's called intergalactic wow and when i look at those types of animations when i look at arcane i'm like this is art you know and then if you happen to arcane had a you know the people who created it also did a six series um documentary on how they made it okay and i was blown away by the artists who how hard they worked and the talent that went behind that I'm sure. animation. Absolutely. And so, yeah, I look at animation in the way that it's being done now. And, you know, in the past too. That's art too. It's oh, not 100%. just animation. A hundred percent. And it is, um, it is a pet peeve of mine when they are separated. Like, I don't, this is a little bit about what the Creative Mornings talk was about. How I think our default is is traditional realism when we think about fine art and good art. And I sort of tried to explain why that is in that talk, um, why we keep defaulting to that. And 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 I kind of tried to do debunk why that mm -hmm. is, right? Um, and how that isn't exactly, um, how it makes no sense why we, we consider that the be the, you know, on the highest platform, the best. Yeah. When all of these other types of um, media are better frankly yeah yeah and that intention and that practice is also put put into it and 100 percent. yeah and with the the kid cuddy one i was excited about the layers of artistry too because um virgil abloh while he was still alive did all the quote-unquote costuming wow. for the animation too and he he sadly passed before it came out but they did a nice tribute uh of him uh in the parting shot of mm -hmm. the animation, he just happened to be on a billboard with icon and quotations. I love that. That's great. And 
it's just amazing how all of those, you know, there's a lot of different moving pieces and a lot of different people to bring one thing together. It's not just one person mm-hmm. doing everything, right? So And it takes years yes. sometimes for these things. So Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, anyways, I just wanted to touch on that because, um, yeah, for me, animation is, is also art. Well, it is the way that we can bring all those things together in a, like, it's what I mean by, like, this is the future of how we can actually sound, video, um, time-based media basically mm. is the future, I think, because yeah. we're able, there's no limits to what you can do. Right, right. I love that. And then just the idea of limitlessness, limitlessness is so beautiful in its, in its way. So I'm wondering, I know I'm just watching the time here, I know that we're all short on time, so I'm respectful of yours, but um, I'd love to know what's exciting you about the art world right now. And also, what's disheartening about it? Hmm, okay. I think just right off the bat, what's exciting to me is post-COVID, how dramatically of a shift um, we've we've taken to self-selling and um, being able to do that online. And of course, that comes, you know, uh, that's indirectly tied as well to NFTs and the, of course, um, emergence of that and how it's thriving. Um, but just because of, I, I will say, because of the pandemic, so many of us turned our, you know, turned our um, focus to where we live, where we are, what we're surrounded by and how important that is. And then turned to, okay, well, how am I going to find these things? And the internet was there. So that pivot in so many of my clients to, to selling online, selling themselves, um, is something I could have never imagined. Mm. And I also couldn't have imagined so much money being put into, um, purchasing artwork, which is fantastic and actually like should have been the case the whole time. And let's keep it up. You know, let's continue to invest in our spaces, which until we were trapped in them, I don't think people cared about as much. Mm. Um, so we saw, you know, people bought a lot of stuff during the pandemic. And this was one of those things. Art was one of those things. Um, and I think you also realized how important it was. So I find that exciting. And I find um, that momentum um, to be able to do things without the the gallery, even though the gallery is wonderful, um, but without the, the four walls of the gallery. I, I find that super exciting. Mm. Um, and... Your second question, what I'm disheartened yeah, by. If there's anything that's that's disheartening. Um, I think that there is also uh, an unfortunate sort of, and this is also tied very much, I think, to my first answer, which um, is strange. There's, there's the downside to that as well, which is that it also breeds a, um, a culture that is, quite consumer heavy and uh maybe and that sort of reflects on the the work not taking the time that it needs because it is moving quickly or it is part of a trend and a lot of people are on that trend and um and then maybe the work suffers a little bit because of that and then there are also a ton of copycats and just a lot of there's a lot of that right Mm -hmm. um like anything that becomes a trend I think that's the word, right? That there's going to be, yes, if 
if Gucci's made something, then eventually down the pipeline, H&M is going to make that thing and we're going to see a lot of fast fashion and then a lot of waste. Mm. Um, and so that naturally will happen in the art world as well with this. Yeah. Right. So I think that's maybe the only the only downside and what I see as a little bit disheartening at this time. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, because it just it waters, it dilutes the original beauty it, and intent of it dilutes the originality and it all it was. Yeah. And it also um, it, I think it makes people lose sight of of their own voice a little bit because mm. they um, they're so saturated in in the fact that self-selling is so possible and that they see people doing such a great job um, in a very particular style that they think, well, let me give that a try and do the exact same thing. But who knows if they would have never seen that, what they would have created. Right, right. Mm, that's I, that's something very important to, to think about. Yeah. So I think it stifles the, the, um, the unique process a little bit. Mm. The, yeah. The authentic process. Mm. For those, for those of us who love art and want to be a part of moving the fabric of arts and culture in any city forward, what are the things that we can actionably do to support art and artists in more ways than you know, buying? buying. Yeah. yeah. Talking, I think. Um, again, back to the the talk, just that pet peeve of mine being that I don't feel like we have, people feel shy about talking about art. They feel like if they say something is good or bad, that they have to justify it. And then by justifying it, they, they feel like, um, that is the equivalent of saying I am a cultured person. I wear a top hat and a monocle and I know things. And it's not, it's not. We talk about shows that we watch and music that we listen to with this passion that we're an expert. You know, we live and die by the shows, shows that we think are good. Okay. But for some reason we don't talk about artwork that way. And I think it's a mixture between just, um, saturation. Like we don't see it enough. We don't, it's not part of our daily fabric enough. Mm. Um, and, and confidence. So I think it's a kind of a two pronged thing. So if we can boost those two things and luckily they kind of go hand in hand, you see more of something, you feel more comfortable talking about it. Absolutely. But also perhaps a little bit more of a, like a devil may care attitude about saying whether you like something or not and why you like that thing or not. And it's okay to say that this thing that is a $10 million is total trash. And it's okay (laughs) to say that thing that people find tacky is awesome. You know, we just, you have to own it a bit. You yeah. own it with everything else. I don't get why we don't own it with art. And it like, it's, you heard my talk. It is clearly a pet peeve. Of mine. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I love this notion of, of talking about it because, you know, when you look at art, it will make you feel a certain way. And we talk about our feelings. So maybe just start right there. But also we're bad at talking about our feelings too. So <laughs> maybe start <laughs> with that. Let's, examining let's start yourself. with that. <laughs> um, but even you posting on, um, like what you said, just sharing an image and posting about it or anything. Um, once we start sharing, I think, and talking about our, we give it worth, right? We mm-hmm. give it value. We, 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 we identify it as something that is worth looking at and posting and talking about and spending time on and sharing. So if that's 
once you know we can become a culture that isn't holding art and fine art in ivory tower and just bringing it down to mm. the people again yeah. then just like tv and just like anything else um it's not just like the anime it's not um dissimilar from the art world mm-hmm. it is art itself so let's talk about it yeah and also too it's like it's just appreciating art too like at the very end of it just being like someone created that <laughs> Completely. And you can say from their heart. Totally. And it doesn't always have to be good. That's what I'm getting at as mm-hmm. well. You can rip something apart, but you've given it time and you've, and therefore it's and worth, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it's your, your energy in a tangible form. And yeah, totally. So it's, it's definitely worth something. Yes. <laughs> You're worth your energy for sure. Well, the second to last question I have sure. is when you picture your younger self in a room drawing something over and over again and you reflect on her as an adult now, if you were going to say something to that version of yourself just about life or what you've learned, what would you say? Buy Bitcoin, I would say that. (laughs) Right now, go smash the piggy bank and whatever coins you have in there, buy Bitcoin with that. Um, Just kidding. I would say that I think I don't, I'm going to say this with the caveat that my younger self would not have listened to my future <laughs> self. No way. But I would have still said, try not to sweat the small stuff so much because um, there aren't just three jobs out there. There are so many nuanced positions and needs and purposes that fit these amazing liminal spaces that are hybrids of all sorts of different types of jobs. And, you know, you don't have to, I I think this is perhaps something I would say to a slightly older version of myself, but still, I think it started from there. There was this, there was three jobs, four jobs at that time. Mm. And I always thought like you had to fit into one of those things and drawing that thing over and over again so that the eye would be a perfect eye means nothing. You know, that's not realism. Realism isn't the key. It's not perfection, right? Right. There are other things. Mm. Yeah. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. My final question that I ask everyone, with what you do, what is it that you want to leave behind in the world? Yes. Yeah, so I guess other than a massive art collection, <laughs> that I would leave behind and a, and a body that has like died from gluttony <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and living life too hard. Um, I would love to, I guess I'd love to leave behind a, a roadmap for, um, for artists to navigate getting from here to there and wherever that may be. And that roadmap, you know, comes with a set of language, language tools that they can use to speak about their work and identify what it is about, about their practice that makes it weak or strong. And, um, and that language hopefully also asks a lot of questions for Mm. them to be curious as well. Um, and maybe, and maybe a toolkit for that, for that road trip to get from here to there. Um, so that if you get a flat tire, they can change it. If the, 
engine overheats, they can cool it down and, uh, and those set of, you know, I think I'm getting too deep into the metaphor, but basically <laughs> a set of tools to be able to approach how to fix what ails you, mm. you know, and how to get from here to there. If in fact there is a here to there, or maybe you just enjoy the drive and you keep tuning up the car whenever it overheats or shuts down or needs you. Right. Mm. So I, yeah. And I definitely think those tools exist out there, but if I can add to that in any small way, um, which is what I'm trying to do right now, um, I hope that I can. Yes, you have and you continue, you will continue to. And I think that's really beautiful. Thank you. Fingers I crossed. really, really appreciate your time. And if you do leave this world from gluttony, let me just put on the record that Penny Lane puts together a mean charcuterie plate. <laughs> <laughs> That could I be what I leave behind. I would be happy to leave a wonderful spread. Like just <laughs> at my funeral, it's going to be awesome. Yeah. The food, it better <laughs> the be. The meats, cheeses yeah. will be like top notch. Off the charts <laughs> at my funeral. Get ready. Oh, one more thing. If people want to yeah. find you, if yes. artists want to reach out to you, how yes. can they connect? Yeah, they can find us on our website, daysandconfucius.com. Um, and on our Instagram at days.and.confucius. Um, and I think maybe you'll probably link to that somewhere. It'll be in the show notes. Great. Yeah. yeah. That's it. And on Instagram, Penny Lane, thank you for this conversation. I always enjoy them. I can't wait for more. Oh, and it was a blast. Yes. When you are back, because you're leaving, aren't you? I'm always trip? leaving here yeah. and there. Yeah. <laughs> well, whenever you're back and not leaving... I'd love another hang. Please come over for yes. a charcuterie board <laughs> and a six-hour conversation. Yes, yes. I, I look forward to it. Thank you. Thanks, May. As always, thank you for being here and for listening. To learn more about today's guest, visit the episode page for show notes and links on wearethecraft.com. You can find the entire podcast archive here or explore more conversations with past guests on Spotify and Apple. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button on these platforms, including YouTube, to get notified when new episodes drop. Any likes and shares on social media are deeply appreciated too. Sound and audio engineering for the show are by Andrew and Jay Bagaspis. All guest portraits and images are by Juno Kim. Appreciate you all and see you again soon.